Yep. That's I don't true. mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, this feels the like, moment you decide. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, always edit. <laughs> so, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right. So, the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian. No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Before we move on to the podcast itself, I wanted to tell you about a school in Boise, Idaho called the Boise Classical Academy. Benjamin Brandon, a contributor to this podcast, is the director of the Boise Classical Academy. Boise Classical Academy inspires students to love learning by exploring beauty, goodness, and truth in the classical Christian tradition. They seek to integrate the homeschool and classical traditions into an atmosphere that pursues education of mind, body, and soul. They promote a faith-based foundation, a partnership with families, a classical curriculum, and a dynamic learning environment. Their website is boiseclassicalacademy.com. Check them out. I played Ultimate Frisbee with a few of those kids, and they were quite good kids. Now on to our podcast. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. On this week's podcast, Tom Velasco, Trevor Adams, and I discuss a new theologian, Methodius of Olympus. Only one of his works still exists in its entirety, which has several titles, either The Symposium or On Virginity. Continuing our explanation of new themes, this dialogue was written to mimic Plato's dialogue, The Symposium, except it introduces a Christian view of sexuality. This is a sensitive topic, but we handle it with care, as does Methodius. While Methodius is a lesser-known figure in the history of Christian theology, we thought it was important to bring him into the conversation as he introduces the foundational concept to early Christianity, virginity. This theme will be discussed more often as we progress through into the 4th century. Methodius also takes aim at Origin of Alexandria, whom we discussed in several podcasts. More of the debate will come up in next week's podcast as we discuss Methodius' work on the resurrection. Thanks for listening. Check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. So we're reading Methodius here. So Methodius was a bishop um, in, a, in sort of the Greek-speaking church. Um, he is a antagonist to some degree to origin, which will come out in the symposium uh, or the banquet of the 10 virgins or concerning chastity. This dialogue has several names in it. Um, we get a very full treatment um, of the growing um, belief and conviction. Uh, I don't know if I want to say the best Christians, but sort of the most devoted Christians will be virgins. Um, and so this is what Methodius is trying to lay out in a dialogue that, like, as, as I said, mimics uh, the symposium to a great degree. Um, and basically, Origen, um, there's some people who think that Origen, b- based on the way that Eusebius, uh, Eusebius records that Origen castrated himself um, in an effort to be pure and in an effort to, to stay a virgin. Uh, there are a lot of people who question whether or not this is accurate, including other things that uh, Origen writes about eunuchs. Um, so, it, you know, it's at least questionable um, whether or not Origen actually um, made himself a eunuch. Um, I've been wondering when you were going to bring or when that was going to come up, because I remember I, I didn't want to bring it up just because I didn't have anything that resembled a source for it. It's been too long since I've read Eusebius, so I didn't remember it there. But I did remember um, when I was studying early Christian history at Boise State, my professor, Dr. O'Dall, he said that uh, Origen castrated himself. But, of course, Dr. O'Dall was very quick to pretty much take Eusebius as gospel truth uh, most of the time. Uh, he just took it for granted that those guys knew what they were talking about, I think. Um, so he kind of spoke it as fact. He might have had other sources. I don't know, but I just remember that thinking, uh, that's really interesting. Um, it's really terrible. Uh, but well, very enough. quickly after Origen writes, I mean, Methodius is probably 60 years after Origen. Um, and much of what he wrote is preserved in this guy called Epiphanius, um, who comes along a little after afterwards, who does not like Origen. So preserves Methodius as a um, as an authority against origin, 
And so, but actually the, one of the reasons that people question the tradition about Origen castrating himself is it, there was another Bishop Demetrius uh, who did not like Origen's thought. Um, and it is, you know, sort of people who go back and read history have questioned whether or not Demetrius might've just said that uh, as a, as a slander to Origen um, because most virgins and most men who practiced virginity, in this case, we're, we're going to read in this dialogue, all the virgins that are referenced are women. Um, so a virgin in the way that we read it is always a woman. Now, there were also men who were, um, who were virgins who would uh, renounce marriage and any kind of sexual um, uh, intercourse, but – um, basically they, they were not usually called virgins and it was sort of, it was sort of, um, considered like the easy way out almost, <laughs> um, if you castrated yourself, uh, like you shouldn't castrate yourself cause you should have to fight the temptation. So that's why some people have thought it's like a, that, that this guy Demetrius was sort of slandering origin saying he wanted to be pure, but couldn't do it on his own. So he had to do this. Well, and that really ties into the end reveal of this of this particular dialogue, right? I mean, that goes right to the heart of the theme that they were bringing, which, by the way, I mean, I, I don't know if we want to put off talking about that for a bit, but I just didn't find it a very profound twist. Like, uh, you know, only to say, you send an email saying, hey, guys, it takes an interesting turn at the end. And I was expecting that uh, the principal, uh, well, of the two principal dialogue, uh, what is it, Eubolius or yeah, Eubolius? That Eubolius was going to say, actually, we all should get married and have children because it's so necessary for. But that's not where he went. You know, it, it, instead, the turn was just whether or not. Um, I mean, is it, should I bring? Should we talk about it? I mean, is it okay to bring it up now? Or? Uh, let's let's put off the end, and I will also give my reason why it felt like a big reveal to me. Okay. Um, but let's put that off. So let's let's sort of get the arguments out on the table, if you like. Um, basically, there are these ten virgins um, who come forward and have this dialogue that Gregorian hears um, and reports to Eubolius. Uh, that's the beginning of the dialogue. the The sort of mother of all of these virgins is um, Arete, or um, you know, is the word for excellence or virtue. Um, and then there are these 10 very virtuous virgins who give their sort of defenses of why they are virgins. Um, we'll get to Thecla a little later, uh, but but Thecla is the most famous virgin from antiquity. Um, she will be referenced by Jerome, referenced by Greg, the Gregories. Um, she is extremely important, and her story is told um, in the apocryphal Acts of Paul and Thecla. But she she's very important um, to the first several hundred years of the church as the icon of the virgin woman. Um, and she she speaks later in the dialogue and actually uh, composes a hymn, uh, which is kind of cool. But and um, when, incidentally, she wins the competition. Right. Which just, to, I mean, you know, at the start, we mentioned the fact that that this dialogue is. The symposium. So for our listeners who are not familiar with what we mean by the symposium, Plato wrote a dialogue um, uh, in which there were a bunch of people at a dinner party and they were, and, and that's what a symposium, by the way, is it was a dinner party. So a bunch of people at a dinner party reclining, eating food and drinking wine. Wine was a central component of the symposium. And in the middle of, of the course of this dinner, they were asked to each give a speech and at the end of the speeches, there would be a judgment as to who was the best speech giver. And the speech, the topic of the speech was love, or in Greek, eros, the romantic love or sexual love. And so each one got up and delivered a speech. And of course, at the very end, Socrates, last of all, stood up and delivered his speech. And Socrates is, uh, I might actually be mistaken because it's been so long since I've read the symposium. Did Socrates win? the symposium or did somebody else win? And then Socrates came up, came in and gave his own speech. I forget. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. I can't remember. It's one of those two things, but this dialogue is clearly modeling itself after the symposium only instead of sexual love or romantic love, they're inverting it and they're doing speeches in praise of abstinence, virginity, 
chastity. And they use the word chastity a lot in place of virginity, probably for the reason that that um, that Chad just mentioned, uh, that they don't necessarily use the word virgin for men. Um, and in the midst of this, you have Thecla winning the speeches, but at the very end, somebody else steps up and he speaks. And are, is Eubolius a he or a, a, a man or a woman? Yeah. Yeah. He speaks and that changes everything. And that's why I think, like I said, it's been, it's been years. It's been over a decade since I read the symposium. Um, but I think somebody else wins the competition and then Socrates kind of corrects everybody. That, that's what I think happened, but I, I might be wrong. It could have been that he just won the competition. Um, all right. Yeah, so um, let's let's take. Um, I don't know if you want to take each one of these individually, uh, no. Mark, but um, the most important ones. I mean, to get out to get out from the start. Um, okay, so why would a Christian um, in the third century? Um, Methodius dies um, actually in three eleven, um, right before, uh, sort of in, in the middle of the. Um, I believe it's is it the Diocletian persecution still. 311? Uh, yeah. No, Di- well, I'm trying to think when Galerius ends it. It's not 311, though. Constantine converts in 312. Diocletian yeah. uh, stepped down in, uh, it was way before 311, because you had Galerius okay. after, after Diocletian. Okay, so. so, well, he is martyred, uh, nevertheless, um, in 311. So this, but anyway, so in this in this period, this early period of, um, of Christian development, uh, they they value virginity. Um, chastity with men is a very rare thing. Markella says in her first chapter and difficult of attainment and a proportion to its supreme excellence and magnificence uh, is the greatness of its dangers. Um, and sort of, they, they, they sort of, it's a, they believe that virginity keeps one pure. And the idea is to be as, as pure and as unencumbered by passion and unencumbered by desire as possible as a way to imitate Christ, who they say um, in chapter four, um, Christ alone taught virginity. Um, Christ, he he was incorrupt uh, so that we would also, if we would come to the likeness of God in Christ, should endeavor to honor virginity. That's chapter four uh, or chapter five, actually. So Christ was a virgin. Therefore, we should be virgins. It keeps us pure and away from the passions. Um, this is, these are some of the main reasons, um, for virginity. Um, also some things that Paul says, but, um, yeah. Well, the, the stuff that Paul says is pretty significant though. He does, he quotes from first Corinthians seven, mm-hmm. where in first Corinthians seven to summarize, Paul says that he wishes that people would be like himself. That is a virgin. Well, not a virgin, but not married in any case, not, uh, not, not bogged down with a wife um, because Paul says, I would have you serve the gospel without distraction. The man who is married, he has to concern himself with the things of his wife. Whereas the man who is alone, he can concern himself with the things of the Lord. So the idea being that, uh, you know, Paul takes a very different tack in first Corinthians seven, because there's one thing that comes out very clearly in the banquet of the 10 virgins. And that is these people think that they are better because they're virgins, right? I mean, they, there's some pretty extreme things said, almost almost at the level of you really don't know if you're saved, if you're not a virgin. Like, your guarantee of being a Christian and gaining entrance to heaven is virginity. I, I don't know that anybody necessarily explicitly says that, because some of them admit that God has preserved, uh, for the sake of of offspring has preserved marriage and things of that nature. But nonetheless, there is almost that tone. But Paul's is not at all a tone of you're a better person if you're a virgin. Paul's is you can serve without distraction because if you're married, you have responsibilities that you wouldn't have otherwise. And he says, I would have you free from those distractions. But then Paul also says, nonetheless, if you can't help yourself, if, in, other, in other words, he actually says, if you burn, um, and by that he means burn with passion or desire, then it is better to marry. Because it is better to marry than to spend your time burning with passion. But then they take that as an argument and kind of turn, turn that and say that Paul's um, concession there ad, kind of acknowledges that it's, it's like, it, it's basically bad. You know, Paul concedes 
so that if you're weak and you're one of those burning type people, like you mm-hmm. can't control yourself, fine, feel free to get married. Um, and so I, I thought that was a significant part of the early, I thought that was one of their kind of good arguments. I feel like a lot of their arguments aren't, aren't very strong. So one other way to state how Tom said, if they consider themselves better or superior um, in chapter, uh, in discourse four from Theopatra chapter two, she says, now I at least seem to perceive that nothing has been such a means of restoring men to paradise and of the change to incorruption and of reconciliation to God and such a mean as sal- means of salvation to men by guiding us to life as chastity. Yeah. So it sort of seems like, the, like the most guaranteed way that you're going to return to paradise, be reconciled to God, have the most perfect afterlife, if you like, um, is to be uh, chaste, to be a virgin to, um, in this case. Um, and so for her, um, this is, this is the, the best way um, to achieve the goal of salvation. Which, which is so, yeah. it's just so odd. I mean, of all the things that we've read, this is just, it just doesn't seem connected in any way. I mean, aside from my admittance that those three kind of point, like the fact that Jesus was a virgin, uh, the fact, the fact that Paul said what he said in first Corinthians seven, the fact that Jesus says in the gospels, um, in the synoptics and all three of them, he says that it's not easy for everybody to understand, but for whoever can accept it, let him accept it, that it was, it would be good to be a quote eunuch end quote, for the sake of the kingdom. I don't think, of course, he meant to castrate yourself. Of course, you know, for our listeners, if you don't know what a eunuch is, uh, a eunuch technically is somebody who has been castrated, but Jesus says it, I think, metaphorically. Um, But what he means is, if you can accept it, do accept it. Aside from those things, being a perpetual virgin is just not a predominant theme in the scriptures, nor is it, in fact, it's not, it's not only not predominant in Judaism. It's, I think it's absolutely frowned upon in Judaism. I mean, it it, it just doesn't come from us. This notion of virginity being this glory thing seems to come from Roman paganism. Yeah. It's, it felt like basically they like so many, I think physicians do sometimes they just cherry-picked the verses they needed for this, you know. And then they have a ton of other verses, too, and stories, but then they just read them in such a way that, see, I mean, this is, like, supporting our view about virginity. When it's like, that does not explicitly support your view at all. And it's like, and also, what about, like, the garden and the whole created order and just, like, basically everything else that I guess even, even a Jewish person, yeah, would throw like right back at him. Like, no, like, well, well, when you you say they're cherry picking verses, they are highly allegorical. Most of their, (laughs) most of these speeches in most of these speeches, they're highly allegorizing scriptures that have absolutely nothing in any way to do with virginity. Well, they talk about like the, the feast of tabernacles from the law and how I don't even remember how, it teaches us virginity, but it does, according to I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. Anyway, sorry. That, no, but no, but that's well, what so I'm Let's, be- okay, let's, let's, before we bring them down totally, let's go back and at least say they recognize, and this will go to the point about whether or not um, virginity was a, uh, was praised in Judaism, which as far as I know was not. Um, but right off the bat, Markella says in chapter two, uh, that virginity is a plant from, or uh, it, like her chapter two talks about that virginity comes uh, from heaven, but it's late and sort of, it was necessary for the race of mankind, which was still a very small number. It was necessary that it should be first increase in number and then brought to perfection. Um, so she, you know, so there's this long chapter or, you know, this couple uh, page chapter where she sort of says, yeah, for a long time, it was necessary that uh, people be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. And then when Christ comes and shows us virginity, that's when it, uh, he leads us into perfection. So it would make sense from their point of view and from what Tom said that in Judaism, it wouldn't be a value uh, because you couldn't increase and multiply and procreate, which was necessary to fill the earth, which was a commandment. 
Um, so, so she does have, uh, or so Methodius, you know, laying out these, this value of virginity as he does in the voices of these virgins does recognize that you need people to procreate. Um, it's just that the best thing as, as we talked about perfection, um, can come through virginity. Yeah. And well, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not condemning the choice of celibacy at all. I mean, I'm not, I don't think that it's bad in any way. I do think the mindset is bad. I, I, I agree. I think Paul's right. What Paul says in first Corinthians seven, right. That, and I don't think in a bad way. I mean, when you're married, you obviously have to concern yourself with things that people who are single don't. Um, and those things, maybe distraction is a harsh word because obviously you don't ever want to look at your family as a distraction, but it only in the sense that it does, of course, um, in certain ways, keep you from doing things that somebody who didn't have a family could do for the sake of the gospel. Now, of course, when you're married, that actually creates a partnership that in certain ways can further your work in the gospel as well. But so I'm not against the choice to be celibate or to keep chaste your whole life. I myself am not married um, and have never been or anything like that. Um, So I, I don't have a problem with that. My problem is the way that they look at it as if it is this, first of all, this heightened state over other believers. And secondly, uh, to filter all of salvation and all of the gospel through this like truth as if this is the core truth of Christianity. I think that's what rubs me the wrong way. I think, I think that's where I, I take issue is the way that they clearly are so proud of themselves and think that it's not even that it's filtering all of Christianity through virginity. Like, for me, that it should be such a secondary, inconsequential thing. Um, I, I guess that's what I take. I will also take issue with her argument here, talking about virginity being a new thing. It is new in the Judeo-Christian tradition at this point. It is not new in the history of the world. Um, pagan religions long had revered virginity um, and had created... Um, you know, I mean, for instance, the Roman Vestal Virgins, just as one example, you had basically these different religious cults where people would devote themselves to lifelong celibacy um, for the sake of their worship. So it's not as if this notion of religious celibacy is a new thing. It's new in our tradition. But I think a strong argument could be made that the way that it is evolved by this point is people are, in fact, looking at this behavior on the part of these pagans, revering it, respecting it, and co-opting it. I don't think it's bad, by the way, to borrow things that are useful and beneficial and good from pagans. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, it's not new in that sense, not in a strict sense. Um, and so I think if the world once upon a time, even when it needed to procreate to be big and vibrant, had virgins, had celibates, well... Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I just don't think that's necessarily new in that sense. Well, in order to defend their con- their conception of virginity, I mean, it could be a, a a borrowing from the Vestal Virgins. I might rather explain it by their extreme views of the impassibility of God, um, the influence of concupiscence, desire, um, and lust. Um, basically, if you were there, the fear was that you would be pulled apart by desire. Um, and the, if God was absolutely impassable, um, if God was absolutely without, um, without being controlled by his emotions, they're trying to imitate Christ who not only was a virgin on earth, also being God was impassable, was without desire. And I think that they're trying to, um, imitate God in that to the fullest extent. Understandable. I, I wouldn't disagree yeah. with that at all. I mean, I, I, I think that their motivations, for loving virginity are far more rooted in Christian ethics and Christian theology. So when I say they co-opted it perhaps from paganism, I don't mean to say that, that they're stealing pagan motivations. I think they have these motives that are rooted in their Christian theology that has this expression in something that they respect and have kind of maybe borrowed the practice, not the idea, which is why, which for me is why I even made the comments a moment ago where I said, I don't mind us borrowing from pagans necessarily um, when it's something that is, you know, rooted in 
Well, and I, and, and I would also imagine, you know, they might have a bit of a historical perspective because of, I, you know, that I think probably church tradition was floating around a lot more in their ears and was a bit more rich than what we have today. But like Peter probably didn't get married either. I imagine when he, he was, was married when he, he was married when he went to Rome or whatever. Well, his wife, the bishop. So according to tradition, his wife was definitely still alive because they died on the same day. Oh, they but died on the same day. According to tradition, scripture though in scripture he's clearly married because he has a he has a, a mother in law. Ah, true that, huh? Mm-hmm. So. Well, um, I wonder, though, how many of the other, like, basically founders of the church or those who came, like, right after ended up getting married. Like, I, I don't know if they have, like, some sort of, um, you know, basically if they're idolizing a certain group of people. It's it's possible. Paul does say at one point, and I forget where which letter, but he's he's talking about, he's basically kind of sitting there saying, look, Barnabas and I we have just as many rights as all the rest of the apostles. And he says, don't we have a right to take along a wife if we want, like they do. So the implication is, is that most of the apostles actually have wives and that Paul and Barnabas alone, not alone, but that uh, unlike most of the apostles didn't. Right. Well, no, so, I'm also, also thinking of people like Polycarp though. And just yeah, some early, ch- I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say possible. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure the history's out there on that, but I don't know it necessarily. But I just, in the same way that they looked up to and had, I thought, an unhealthy fascination with martyrdom, uh, I thought there might be a parallel in some sense, because maybe it was just a great number of church fathers or priests or bishops they saw. It was like, these guys are virgins, too, and... So it was like a lifestyle to be commended or some sort. I don't know. It's but. possible. There's a, doesn't seem to be a lot on it. I mean, we've, this is the first that we've really stumbled upon a lot of discussion of virginity. Pure speculation, no yeah. facts. <laughs> well, so there, to, go to, some, to go to some facts, um, yeah. As far as uh, as far as the literature is concerned, up until Jerome in the late fourth century, the ideal is still virginity, um, and so there is, um, and actually. We'll get to the the sort of reveal, if you like, of Methodius. I, I mean, I did. A, I've done some research on this in my program. There is almost no praising of marriage that I can find in the extant literature. I mean, so every source, every theologian seems to think that the best thing is to be celibate. Um, well, really quickly, from when? Because this is the first time I remember reading anything about praising of celibacy. Uh, I mean, Tertullian is Tertullian says some stuff that we haven't read um, okay. about the, uh, about virginity, um, but um, yeah. So Thecla um, is is one. So the Acts of Paul and Thecla are um, probably an early second. It's probably an early in se- early second century document uh, where we get this praising of the virginity of Thecla, um, and then we will read um, the, the Vita Antony, the Life of Antony from Athanasius, which is. Uh, um, you know, the next century, the fourth century. Um, so, I mean, I guess maybe what I'm saying is there wasn't any praise of marriage um, at all either. Uh, there was, you know, there were these seeds of virginity and then it, it just flowers right at this point that um, Methodius is talking or when Methodius is writing um, by the end, by his death, we think that that's probably around the time that uh, uh, that uh, Athen- or Anthony lived, excuse me, um, and was sort of the first monk to return to the desert, it, or, or it'll be not long after that. Um, and so we're, we'll have this real um, rise uh, in the desert monasticism. And a lot of the desert monasticism drew on the writings of Origen uh, because he also seems to have valued uh, virginity. Yeah, I'd have to. I have to go back. I, I don't really recall of the stuff we've read what it may have said about marriage. I, I, I don't. But I do know only because I feel like if I came across a passage that said much about marriage, I just wouldn't think anything about it. But if I saw something about virginity, I would remember. And so, there's no doubt. I mean, I have no doubt that there are the seeds of virginity early in the church. But of the stuff we've read, there's hardly any praising of it, if any at all. And yeah. so it certainly seems to be kind of a small thing, at least early on in church history. Yeah. Uh, and I think another thing to consider, um, you know, is the question of how quickly uh, the early theologians believe the return of Christ 
to be. Um, I mean, you know, or to like, so did they believe that they would see the return of Christ? I think, um, you know, that may play a role in why, uh, vir- may, may, maybe not virginity, but also not really the praising of marriage. I think, a, I think for, uh, there's, there's reason to believe that a lot of the early theologians, um, Clement and others, maybe even Paul, um, thought that, uh, he would see the return of Christ, mm-hmm. um, in his lifetime. So if you're having a family um, and you're th- having a family sort of presumes that you're going to live your whole life um, and is maybe not really preparing for the return. Um, I, I, this gets into some dicey stuff with interpretation of scripture and whatnot. Um, so I don't know how mar- far I want to push this, but, but I think there's reason to believe that many of the theo- many of the early theologians either thought that they would be martyred and killed um, or um, or they would see the return of Christ. Yeah, well, you can see that in 1 Corinthians 7, because Paul says at the outset, given our current distress, almost implying either, with that it implies that, that hey, we're about to face martyrdom, so there isn't a lot of point to have a family. Um, there's this urgency of we've got to kind of go at this. Or um, there are some things kind of later in the chapter where you go, oh, this could be just talking like time is short, Let's get this done. We've got work to do. We've got to go out and preach because Christ is going to return soon. Now, the thing about martyrdom, I, I've kind of been thinking the whole time I read this. I'm like, was this just kind of a practical reaction to mar- martyrdom, possibly? Like, they're not going to come out and say that, but um, it it could possibly just be like, look, we're going to die, and we're not going to leave behind orphans, so... It's just not have kids, yeah. basically. I don't know. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there's definitely a practicality to that. But I wasn't sure. Yeah. Once again, not a historian. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and it, I mean, a lot of it is going to be conjecture anyway, but I think it's a fair question. And, you know, all like the persecutions are really ramping up at this, you know, in this turn here with Methodius, late third century, early fourth century. Um, we, you know, we talked about the first full scale persecutions in 250, um, you know, so at this, you know, at this point, the, the Roman uh, government is getting quite upset uh, with the Christians and f- really moving into these um, sort of what we typically think of as full wholesale persecuting of Christians, requiring them to sacrifice to the pagan gods, like we talked about with Cyprian and the lapsed. And so I think in this time period that we're, that we're focusing on, it's a real consideration that you might die. Um, And, um, but yeah, there's, there's also some other, uh, we didn't read the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. Um, They, uh, Perpetua actually has a child in that dialogue, uh, which is from North Africa um, in, in the early third century. Um, but, uh, even she sort of, she's like sort of willing to die, um, and give her child away. Um, she prefers martyrdom over the life of the mother. Um, so it's kind of a, hmm. it's a, it's an interesting little, uh, dial or interesting little story. You know, just cause you brought it back up, it gives me an opportunity to bring it back in Chad, because when we were talking about the great persecution a moment ago, Diocletian's persecution, um, uh, the great persecution technically starts on 303 in 303 and it does in fact end in 311. Of course, the great persecution continues under, um, uh, under Galerius, which is why, uh, which is why I was a little, you know, why, why my first thought was it was over by then because I knew that Diocletian uh, ruled uh, until 305. So I knew that he wouldn't be ruling till 311. So Galerius does end in 311. So it's actually very likely that that uh, Methodius died under the great persecution under Galerius. And actually, there are some spots where it was continued even after Galerius called for the ending of the persecution. Isn't it crazy that any of these Christians survived at all? I mean, we're killing them and telling them not to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> It's like somehow there's still Christians. Yeah. Like, it's kind of crazy. Well, it's it's crazy because we're getting real close to Constantine's conversion. And when that happens, well, now we're in charge, right? I yeah. Mean, that's, that's everything changes completely. But it's like now you have generations of kids. It's like I grew up a Christian and it's just yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. 
like, no, my parents would have been killed, so yeah. that doesn't seem fun. Or they just never had sex. Like, <laughs> Which, actually, can I say one more thing? Just because of what you just said. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but there are a couple of spots in here where they, the virgins actually s- seem to speak of scenarios wherein Christians were, in fact, married, but took vows of chastity in their marriage. Oh. Um, so that seemed to be a practice. And I remember... Years ago, a friend of mine who was a pastor up up north, who's he's a pastor, but he's this. I mean, he, he's definitely he's not a, like a an official scholar, but he's a really bright guy and reads a lot of history. And he had told me that he said that that was a practice early in the church, and I had never read anything on it. And this is the first I actually remember seeing something in one or two passages in earlier writings where I thought it might kind of imply that that we read, but this is the first clear reference to Christian men taking wives, but not sleeping with them, taking so wives chat within their marriage. So they're called the therapeutae. Um, and um, actually, uh, Chrysostom, when we get to him, will condemn this practice um, because he says there's sort of no way that you can sleep with in the bed with your sister and not um, fall into temptation. Uh, but there is this practice of these therapeutic, which may actually go back to Philo. Um, and um, so Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish interpreter. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a practice that that persists in um, in Egypt um, and in um, Cappadocia and some of the other uh, Asia Minor um, in those areas where, there, yeah, there are men and women living together, presumably um or at least um, on the surface, they're 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 chaste, they're virgins, but they're married. Yeah. That's so weird. I mean, that's yeah. just it's just weird. That is. Do we want to get into this turn that this takes? Because so, yeah, be real quick. So, um, I should mention Thecla, who wins the conversation. Oh, yeah. As I've said, Thecla. Um, so in the story, uh, in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, Thecla meets Paul. Uh, fall and sort of gives up. She was betrothed. She rejects her betrothal. Um, she follows Paul, listens to Paul. Um, she's about to be burned, but is rescued. Um, she's about to be martyred, but is rescued. And then Paul gives her a right. At one point, he actually gives her a right to baptize herself, uh, which is interesting um, because it looks like <laughs> she sort of holds a somewhat um, priestly role, even of herself. And then she teaches um, and ultimately goes and lives in the desert um, a, as a monk. And she lives in a cave or, well, as a, I guess you could say a nun, but, a, a, but a, she lives alone um, and teaches. Um, and she is, um, let's see, like I said, Jerome mentions her frequently. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa says that his uh, sister Macrina is like Thecla. Um, Thecla has two shrines um, in uh, Asia Minor and uh, in, in sort of Syria, um, she is she is the most important uh, virgin of the fourth century of the fifth century, um, largely drawing on this uh, what we would now call an apocryphal text, um, which is to say it's not in the Bible, uh, but it is influential um, as a as a source of what Christians were thinking. So Thecla gives the last great. Um, defense of virginity um and uh, and then and then sings this hymn at the end uh call and response with the other virgins um again praising virginity it's funny that she won because i found almost nothing really interesting in what she said like uh, i feel like the whole reason that they made her win is because she's thecla like it's like of all which by the way of course for our listeners Methodius doesn't even intend for this to actually be Thecla. So, so if you were to read this, please don't think that this is an actual gathering with the real Thecla there. This is, this is kind of, if you will, almost like something you'd find in say, um, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe the third book of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, where he has King Arthur as a character. He doesn't actually think King Arthur is there. It's a Uh, character who's, Who's speaking, you know, I mean, that's so this is fictional and Methodius knows that he's using this fiction to further his philosophy. But it's clear Thecla wins because she's Thecla, because there's really nothing in, in my mind. I don't know. Maybe you guys disagree about her speech that stands out to me. I mean, did you guys feel that there was I mean, yeah. she talks a lot 
about the book of Revelation, really, which I was like, okay, this is, you know, mostly just trying to explain the birthing of the child from the, the woman in, uh, uh, that appears there in, I forget what chapter. Well, and then the whole bridegroom imagery, the church being the... Twelve. Chapter 12. Bridegroom. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, yeah, the bridegroom imagery, yeah. Yeah. Well, all right, so let's get to the reveal, as I've called it. So in the end... Um, well, and I guess it should also be stated that they never say that just because you get married and you're sort of controlled by concupiscence, by desire, um, that you can't be a Christian. You can and you should resist um, adultery and other sexual sins, uh, but you're, you're always going to be tempted. And the Christian view, the predominant view um, – is that something like sex is like allowable, but it's still dirty. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, that's going to persist for a long time in church history. Like, yeah, I mean, it goes forever that people think that. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like uh, Methodius gives maybe the most <laughs> fair treatment of it, um, of anybody that, that I've read um, around the period mostly thinking after later uh, theologians, but nevertheless, it was just considered a necessary evil. Like you have to procreate because you have to, you know, uh, Jerome will later say that I am thankful for marriage because marriage gives me virgins, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which is an amazing quote. Uh, But it, you know, it's sort of like, it's, it's, you have to be. You have to. You should feel ashamed that you want to have sex, and you should have sex for no other reason than you want a child, and that is it. And be very, very careful. <laughs> and so Eubolius comes to Gregorian in the dialogue at the end of the dialogue, and he says, "Well, uh, this quote um, is chapter three, um, three fifty three in the A and F. But Gregorian, which shall we say are the better? Those who without lust." govern desire concupiscence or those who under the salts of desire continue pure um so basically if you're a virgin you're without lust um is what he's saying um or and then rather the other ones those who are under the salts of concupiscence continue pure so i mean i think the i think the idea being if you're married um you know you can you'll have this desire uh, but you, and you're you're allowed to use the desire to procreate, but you got to be careful because if it controls you, you will commit adultery or you will have all these other impure thoughts. Uh, well, and he actually he's, he's clear to say that um, thoughts are actually not the problem, but whether you act on them. Uh, that actually comes up in the uh, resurrection dialogue. Um, so it's not the thoughts that are necessarily the problem, but if you give in to desire and you have to let your desire out a little bit when you are married. Um, and, and not married to another virgin. <laughs> so here's why, Chad, it was a bigger reveal for you than for me and why I didn't think it was, it was actually almost offensive. It was not really offensive. It was one that I didn't like. And, and it has to do with yours and my interpretation. And honestly, I don't know who's right here. I remember reading it thinking somebody might be able to interpret the way you just did, but I didn't think that it was that. It seemed to me that he was saying, Take two virgins. One of them has no concupiscence, that is no desire, because that's what Gregorian is holding up, is a virgin who has completely overcome desire so that this virgin is nothing but pure in mind all the time. Or take another virgin who is struggling with concupiscence, who is struggling with desire, and which one is better? Gregorian says, well, clearly the former, clearly the one who has no desire. And Eubolius was saying... Um, no, the latter, because it's it's more noble to fight concupiscence and to fight, um, uh, you know, the difficulties of lust and desire and overcome them. That's what's actually more noble. So it's not that I don't think you could read it the way you did, Chad. It's just that that's I was I remember as I was reading through it thinking, I think they're talking about two different virgins. But I could be wrong. Like, I'll admit that that was just my take on it, which is why it wasn't a, like. Because if it was your, what you read, I actually think it would be a really good reveal because that would, in essence, 
be contradicting the entire symposium. It'd be saying, look, it's actually better to get married because when you're married, you have to govern that concupiscence. And I would have found that awesome. Like I, that's actually, that would have been kind of my view. And so that's why I didn't, ha- I didn't take to it as much. I did remember trying to read it the way you did. And I, I just felt that they were both talking about virginity. Okay. I'm glad you said that Tom. Cause yeah, I didn't see a giant twist either, yeah. but the, I now see what you're saying, Chad, I get, do you see a part that makes it? Well, I know it's just more like when you read it that way and you talk about the com. I don't. How do you say this word? This con- concupiscence. Concupiscence. This concupiscence. Um, are you reading it that way because they use that word earlier in reference to? Yeah, because there is an earlier discussion about how how um, desire can be uh, when you're married. You sort of allow yourself a little indulgence in the desire. So therefore it's always present where I, and so I think what I was, yeah, when I read it this way, I, um, I'll have to find, I'll have to go back and look where it occurs. So yeah, mine is in reference to earlier conversations that they have in the dialogue where they talk about being married. Um, and they talk about how it increases this desire in you so that it's there as sort of an active force. Um, and therefore, the virgin never has that as an active force because they've never indulged it. Um, so that's kind of I, I guess that's where I'm taking it from. I was looking to see if they actually mentioned marriage. And now that I think about it, I don't know that they actually do mention marriage um, and between. Well, and I actually did underline the part that made me think and I'm looking at it. and I think it could still be taken either way that made me think he was talking about two virgins. And this is, it's on page 354. It's in the second column at the very top. It's when Eubolius begins speaking. He says, and what saith the Lord? Does he not seem to show that he who retains continence, so self-control, though concupiscent, excels him who, having no concupiscence, leads a virgin life? So I took it that when he said that the second guy retains continence, he means he remains chaste and a virgin, or she remains chaste and a virgin, even though she's fighting through concupiscence. And therefore, that person is actually better than the one who leads a virgin life who has no concupiscence. Yeah, so that's and I, why I interpreted that way. Was that. And I guess the question is, does a virgin still have concupiscence? <laughs> uh, well, I would say, of course. I would say, of course. Y- yeah. I would actually say no virgin could possibly not have it. I, I think it's human. Well, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's in maybe unless you're asexual, there are, okay. There are some, yeah. I mean, there are probably some things that are super, there's some psychology, there's some psycho, yeah. there's, there's some psychological extremes. I'll admit that. But on the whole, um, assuming you don't have some kind of a psychological, you know, you're not a part of this extreme psychological group. I would think everybody has concupiscence. Um, so, you know, I may be, I may be yeah. entirely. It might wrong. go a little, little bit. I guess. I, that? I mean, I guess I could be entirely wrong. But who? So, my, I guess in my mind, who is the person who has no desire? Oh, I think it's wishful thinking on their part. That's what yeah. I. I think it's an ideal that doesn't exist that they that they hold up there. It's kind of like, um, I, you know, I, I've heard of people who will say that they believe in in. Well, I don't want to get into this. Actually, I, I could have. I could have said something. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to say people blessed with the gift of singleness. Well, (laughs) so I just hear stories where people talk about other people being very righteous and they paint this picture of this person being more holy than we all know that that person really is because the truth is we're all human. And as humans, we all sin and we all fail. That's not to say, I, I don't think that everybody's exactly the same. And I do think that people, can can be amazingly good, you know. But at the same time, at the end of the day, we're all sinners. We're all going to have those things that are going to, you know, be impossible for us to overcome. So, so I think here they're holding up an ideal that they're lying to themselves in saying is possible. That's that's what I thought. I could be wrong. I Chad, I do think that that your reading could be right. I just didn't take it that way because of that little section. 
Yeah, and I my and this was based on the fact that I I was trying to say who who would you know I guess who, who would be the one without uh, desire and sort of like if you were committed to being a virgin somehow you were without desire. Yeah, I don't know. I was trying to find another place to sort of talk about where they talk about marriage, but um, yeah, yeah. The other the other thing that it could be is that he's. Um, the whole Eubolius and Gregorian are actually condemning Origen if he was actually a eunuch, and so he would have no desire anymore. Because that he, might be somebody who's actually a eunuch. Maybe somebody who actually castrated themselves. Maybe that's the person. So yeah, maybe the whole ending of the dialogue isn't about a married and a virgin, but about the two different types of virgins. One of them a virgin by uh, mental force rather than by physical. Um, inability. Oh, yeah. That very well could be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was reading this, I mean, you know, I've, I've skirted it just because it always feels weird talking about it, but I guess it is, perp- you know, for the sake of this, I mean, I am not married. I am chaste. I am a virgin. I have concupiscence. <laughs> yeah. Truckloads of it. I know that's probably getting a little too personal on a podcast, but the re- it's just the reality. That's, that's why, that's why it's, you no, know. It se- no, it seems like a silly ideal, but. Well, so for men who are incontinent in consequence of the uncontrolled uh, impulses of sensuality in them, dare to force the scriptures beyond their true meaning so as to twist the defense of their incontinence, increase and multiply. And they are not ashamed to run counter the spirit. But as though born for this purpose, they kindle up the smoldering and lurking passion, fanning it and provoking it. Um, And therefore, he cutting off very sharply these dishonest follies. um, Well, so... um, I guess, you know, I guess that's where I was saying, like, if you get married and desire to increase and multiply, you fan the passion, the desire. Um, And so that's why I think that was maybe kind of what I was um, um, referring to a little bit um, is you're allowed some indulgence of desire. And so therefore it's stronger than the virgin. But I mean, yeah, anyway, I don't think we're going to come to a conclusion on this. Yeah, no, but I get it. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week with Methodius' treatise on the resurrection.